So let's see how brave you are this morning. See if you either know or care to venture some guesses, all right? Does anyone want to guess which book of the Bible contains the most uses of the word kingdom? Matthew is correct. Well done. So if you count the number of uses of the word kingdom, Matthew has one more than one other book of the Bible. If you count the word kingdoms plural, the other book leapfrogs Matthew and has one more than Matthew. Okay, so see if we can get the second one. The first one is Matthew. A lot of people refer to Matthew as the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom, because Matthew uses the word kingdom uh, 55 times. 55 times. It's more than one per chapter. It's almost two per chapter. Okay? Anybody care to guess what the other book is? It is not Revelation, although I think that's a reasonable guess. But if I remember correctly, I think Revelation only has three. I would have thought a lot more when I was, before I looked. Isaiah is also a good guess, but it is, it is not Isaiah. It is not Luke. It is not Psalms. It is not Mark. So, let's do this together. Genesis, Exodus, it is not Acts. It is not Acts. It is Daniel. The other book is Daniel. It's Daniel. Daniel talks about kingdoms a lot. A lot. All right. So, you know, this, this message this morning is an introduction to the series that we're going to focus on over the next month uh, on the kingdom. It seems to me that introductions can go one of two ways. How many of you, when you pick up a book, you always read the introduction? How many of you are introduction readers? How many of you never bother with the introduction? You just go straight to the book. Okay. So, yeah. Um, some of both, but introductions. Introductions can go one or two, one of two ways, it seems. Some books, I have read the introductions and thought, that introduction could have been a whole chapter, right? That is a good introduction. Man, now I want to read the rest of the book. And then sometimes I pick up a book and I read the introduction and I go, that's just a formality to, to, to let people know what's coming and maybe give you a little bit of an outline before... And, and, and I think ideally, in a series of messages, what you'd like is for an, an introduction to be like a, a wow, like I can't wait for the rest of the series. I just will tell you that if this message comes out that way, it will not be because of my excellence, <laughs> okay? Um, because I think this introduction is more of the, let's, let's, let's get the subject started, Let's get the subject started. Let's give us an idea of what we're talking about here. And, and then we're going to really get into the meat of it over the next few weeks. There's a number of things that are being woven together this morning in our singing, in communion, and in this message. Uh, this is an introduction to the kingdom. So we sang a lot of songs that reference Jesus as a ruler or as a king this morning. Those songs were deliberately chosen because of this, this 
emphasis on the kingdom, on Jesus as the, as the, the, the king of a kingdom. We have chosen, this is the second reason, we have chosen to make the phrase that is our congregational focus, it's the first time we've done this, have a, have a, we, we're, we're, we're having a congregational focus this year, and we're just summarizing it very simply. The goal that we want everyone to focus on this year is Jesus first. Jesus first. We're going to focus on Jesus first. It's so basic, right? It's so Sunday schoolish, like, like kindergarten Sunday schoolish. And yet the challenge of putting Jesus first in all things and in all of our lives is really where the rubber meets the road for us as Christians. We're going to focus on Jesus first this year. Now, it doesn't mean that every sermon is going to be Jesus first or that I'm going to say it every single week or ask you to repeat it every single week. It's not anything like that. But I want you to know that throughout this year, the, the, the focus, the heart that we want to orient ourselves with is a heart that says Jesus first. Jesus first. And so it seems appropriate to start this new year with a focus of Jesus first by looking at his kingdom. What's his kingdom about? What does it mean that Jesus is the king? And then asking where we stand in relation to that. That's what we're going to be focused on this morning. So why in the world are these two books, the book of Matthew and the book of Daniel, the books that focused most on the kingdom? Why these two books? Why does Matthew have so much to say about the kingdom? Brother Matt knew that right away. How many of you were a little bit surprised when you first heard it? You might think, ah, that makes sense now. But how many were a little surprised when you first thought of, of Matthew as the one that has the most references to the word kingdom? Yeah. Um, I was wondering how many people were going to say, like, first and second kings or something like that. Right? I mean, it's got to be one of those books of the Old Testament that are constantly talking about the nation of Israel and the, king of, you know, the, the kings of Israel. That would be the one that has not even close. Matthew and Daniel. Why these two books? Well, this is, be, this is going to be uh, just a, a, a brief version of what you would get if, um, if on your shelf at home you have a, um, uh, uh, um, Unger's Bible Dictionary, right? Just a, a, a book that kind of gives you some basic Bible information. Why, why these two books? Well, Daniel. The reason is that Daniel was writing to Jews who had lost their kingdom. They had been a nation, but their homeland had been taken from them. And so a lot of Daniel's prophecies, that's the second reason, is that Daniel is the Old Testament version of the New Testament revelation. Daniel, is, Daniel and Revelation are viewed as companion books, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Books in which prophecy about end-time events and the major players of the end-time events are front and center. And so Daniel, uh, listen, in a very human sense, Daniel makes perfect sense because, because he's writing to a people who were once ruled by a king, who once had a homeland, who are now in exile... And he is talking to them about the movement of kingdoms through time 
and the restoration of their fortunes as a kingdom in the future. Right? And so this is, this, is, this is the book of Daniel. This is what Daniel is dealing with. There's a, there's a hopefulness to it, uh, a restoration of the kingdom kind of, kind of theme that runs through the book of Daniel, along with a, a theme of here's what's happening on the big world scale. Here's what's happening as the Babylonian Empire gives way to the Medo-Persian Empire, gives way to the Grecian Empire, gives way to the Roman Empire. And then that Roman Empire is really a picture of an empire that comes at the end of all times. And that empire is going to have a, a king that is going to rise to its surface who's going to speak blasphemous words. And he's going to be, he's going to be a, a real somebody, and, right? And, and, and he's going to rise to power. And then there's going to be a king that is going to rise, and the king is going to destroy that, that big-mouthed king. Put him down. And so, and so Daniel, in a context of, let me comfort people who have lost their kingdom, does this, this dual track, I'll speak to those people, but I'll speak on the big scale also, and talk about the whole movement of the kingdoms through history. That's what's happening in the book of Daniel. And so it makes perfect sense that Daniel has so many references to the word kingdom. Daniel's prophecies about, uh, about the near future, his, his short-sighted prophecies were fulfilled over the next 600 years. Those are the short-sighted prophecies. His long-range prophecies still haven't come to pass. I mean, here's a man who was who was being gifted by God with vision for way down the road. Way down the road. All right, Daniel. Why Matthew? Well, Matthew had a specific reason for writing. Matthew was writing to the Jews. And Matthew was endeavoring to convince Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, let me give the explanation of why that gives rise to so much kingdom talk. Because the Jewish people were expecting a certain version of the Messiah. Their expectation was that their Messiah would deliver them from an earthly political oppressor, the Roman Empire, and deliver them into a golden age in which Israel would be the head of the nations. They were looking for a restoration of the kingdom of Israel, and in fact, not just a restoration, but an exaltation of that kingdom to be the highest nation in the world. And their thinking about what the Messiah was, was totally focused on a geopolitical perspective of, 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 what the, of who the Messiah was going to be. In order for Matthew to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah, please hear this, because Jesus did fulfilled none of that back then. He did none of that back then. He made no efforts. He didn't preach on it. He didn't encourage it. He didn't attempt it. Jesus did nothing to overthrow Roman rule. And he did nothing to help the Jewish nation become established as the head of the nations of this earth. As a result, everything in the Jewish mind rebelled against Jesus as the Messiah. 
And yet people were looking at a man whose teaching was powerful and whose miracles were undeniable. And they were confused. They were saying, who is this man that could do such things, accomplish such things, say such things, know such things, and not be the Messiah? It was very confusing. Well, what Matthew is doing is trying to explain to the Jews what you need is a redefinition of the kingdom that, that the Messiah came to establish. You're focused on an earthly kingdom. You're focused on, a, on an earthly nation. And you need to understand that Jesus came for a different purpose. The Messiah came to establish a different kind of kingdom than the one you were looking for. And in that kingdom, Jesus indeed is king. And so Matthew, trying to persuade Jews about Jesus being the Messiah, is naturally going to be the writer who is going to talk constantly about the kingdom because he's trying to, to redefine the word kingdom to the Jews that he's speaking to. Does that make sense? Trying to redefine a kingdom. You've got to understand what the kingdom is. Now, the book of Matthew is not really, its main purpose is not to address this. We talked about this last week. We could talk about it again in the future. It doesn't mean necessarily that those promises of an earthly kingdom are not going to be fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just that Matthew had to help them understand why it didn't happen at that time. He's got to get them to understand something different about the kingdom. All right? So this is why these two books contain so many references to the word kingdom. So the message that I want to share with you this morning, as I said earlier, is an appropriate start to this series. It's an appropriate New Year's message and an appropriate kickoff for our year-long focus on Jesus first. Jesus first. This is one of those messages that seems so, so utterly basic. It's like just, wow. We know that. It's so simple. And yet, hearing it and taking a look at ourselves and saying, Lord, what would it really mean for me this year is, is a profound question. And so I'm going to ask you just to hang with me this morning as an introduction to this series. We're, we'll get into, believe me, we are going to have some fun in this series. I, I expect there's going to be a lot of conversations happening in people's homes and between people through this series. Um, but maybe I'm wrong, but that's my expectation anyways. Uh, but this morning, just hear a very simple, straightforward message about the kingdom, an introduction to the kingdom. Um, I want to start this morning from the book that is third on the list of references to the word kingdom. Uh, Matthew, uh, Luke, if I remember, has 44 references to the kingdom, I think. Um, let's read... Let's read from the Gospel of Luke together. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So the setting is this. The Pharisees have come to Jesus and put a question to him. And in response to their question, their question being, 
When will the kingdom of God come? In response to their question, Jesus gives the answer that we just read. So, if you look at these two verses, one way to look at these two verses would be to say that they address generally two things. The first is what the kingdom is not, and the second is what the kingdom is. Okay? So let's, let's, look, at it, let's look at these verses through that lens. Let's start with what the kingdom is not. So when we consider what the kingdom is, is not, let me start this way. The word questioned there, uh, the King James, this is, this is the New American Standard. The King James uses the word demanded instead of questioned. That probably gives a better sense of what was going on because it was not an honest, Jesus, teach us. It was confrontational. That's what it was. It was confrontational. It was oppositional is what it was. It was more along these lines. We know what your miracles are, what they suggest you could be. We've heard you say things like, before Abraham was, I am, so we know what your claims are. But we want you to know that no matter what you've done and no matter what you've said, you're not doing what we think the Messiah is supposed to do. So we reject you. And we reject you on these grounds. Defend yourself relative to the kingdom of God. When's it coming? You've said these things about yourself. You do these miracles. When's the kingdom of God coming? When are you going to do something about all this? It was really a challenge. And really, it was a question that denied, that denied their belief that Jesus could possibly be the Messiah. That's the spirit in which they asked the question. The idea was not a friendly, sincere question looking for an answer. It was, we've seen your signs, your miracles, we've heard your claims, but you're not the kind of Messiah that we want. You're not doing anything about the Romans. You're not overthrowing their kingdom. You're doing nothing to deliver us from Roman oppression. And we're no closer to a golden Jewish age than we've ever been before. So why should we follow you at all? That was the first idea. And then the second idea was that their minds were so fixed on the law and their hearts were so fixed on their own rightness that they couldn't see beyond themselves. And as a result, in their bitterness and jealousy of the audience that Jesus was gathering and the miracles that he was doing, they just wanted to oppose him. I mean... We all know this, but you read through the Gospels and they're constantly trying to stump him. They're constantly trying to trap him with questions. They were just antagonistic to Jesus' ministry every step of the way. And this is just another instance of that. They're, they're speaking in opposition to him. So more specifically, let me, I mean, I'm saying that to say when we talk about what the kingdom is not, I mean, at least we can start by saying this. The kingdom is not what the Pharisees thought it was, that's for sure. 
They were anti-Jesus. They were anti-Jesus as the king. But the more specific answer to what the kingdom is not is this. You have to notice what Jesus says in verse 20. In verse 20, Jesus' answer, what does it mean? The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. This is what the kingdom is not. It is not coming with signs to be observed. It's not that. What does he mean when he says that? The first thing he means is you're looking for the wrong kind of kingdom. You're looking for the wrong kind of kingdom. The kingdom that I'm ushering in is of a different kind. It's of a different kind than the one you're looking for. It's of a different quality than the one you're looking for. So you have to, you have to understand the implication of what, uh, of what Jesus is saying. Um, you know, when things are not what you expect them to be, how many of you have had the experience of either looking for something or, or later on realizing something was right there in front of you, something was so obvious, but you missed it because it wasn't what you expected it to be. It wasn't what you expected it to be. Because it wasn't your expectation, you couldn't see it right away. Right? The idea here is Jesus is saying, because the kingdom is, is different than you expect it to be, you're in danger of missing it totally. You're in danger of missing out on it. You're in danger of not seeing it, of not recognizing it all. Listen, this is, this is exactly what was going on when Jesus in his triumphal entry breaks down and cries and says, Oh, Jerusalem, if only you had known the day of your visitation, if you'd only known that you had been visited by your Messiah, if you'd only known but because I didn't come in the form you expected, you didn't see me. You missed it. You missed it. I wasn't what you expected. So the, 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 the kind of description is this. When you have the definition, when you have a definition that is etched in stone, and then someone says, I am and the I am doesn't fit the definition, eh, that's not possible. The hardest thing for us to do is to ask ourselves the question, do I have the right definition? Do I have the right definition? If I don't have the right definition, then I'm not going to get the right word that fits the definition. Right? And that's exactly what was happening here. They had a definition of what the Messiah would be and what he would do. And when they saw someone who didn't fit the definition, you know, then he can't be it. And no one ever thinks, do we need to revisit the definition? Do we need to revisit the definition? Now, listen, it's, it's kind of excusable in a sense. How many of you would agree that definitions are, they are grounding to us, right? And so to, to redefine something means to, to turn it on its head, potentially, 
to shake the whole world and to turn it upside down and to say, man, I, I've, in this area, I've been oriented completely wrongly. What do I do if the, if the definition changes? But that's what Jesus is saying to them. Your definition of the Messiah is wrong. The second thing he's saying is this. The kingdom of, of God is not coming with signs to be observed. He's saying, the, the kingdom that I am coming to establish right now isn't physical. It's not physical. It's not a tangible thing. It's not something that you can see. It has nothing to do with the things that we experience day in and day out in life on earth so commonly. It's not about, in other words, things like earthly power. It's not about things like national prosperity. It's not about anything to do with things like Jewish sovereignty. It has nothing to do with those things. It is not a physical, visible kingdom. It's not about physical, visible results or physical, visible boundaries. It's not about borders being protected. It's not about any of that stuff. My kingdom is a different kingdom. I'm trying, Jesus is saying to these Jews, I'm trying to tell you that my kingdom exists on a different plane. It's on a different plane. I mean, listen, this is one of the, I, th I think anyways, one of the few times when we as Americans are at an advantage when it comes to understanding a text. Because very few people have ever lived in a place where those people had better reason to think of themselves as a people of God, so to speak, a privileged people under the blessing of God. We can get a sense of what it would be like for the Jews to have an expectation that their nation, earthly nation, deserved the blessing of God that they were a peculiar people. We use phrases like American exceptionalism. It is, a, it is a concept that relates very well to the Jewish mind as a chosen people. We are exceptional. We are special to God. Imagine someone comes around and says, it's not about that at all. Right? We can get how, how challenging that is. Imagine the Messiah is present and he's saying, every concept you've ever had, every concept you've ever had, I'm asking you to turn it on its head. I'm telling you, my kingdom, at least at this time, the primary thing I'm here to do has nothing to do with giving you an earthly kingdom. Has nothing to do with providing for you political power or freedom from oppressors, has nothing to do with that. It is not a physical, earthly kingdom. The third thing he's saying is, 
when he says it's not coming with signs to be observed, the implication is it's going to surprise you. You're not going to see it coming that way. It's going to come out of left field for you. It's going to shock you. It's going to be a surprise to you. It's something that will burst upon you suddenly and unawares. That's the kind of kingdom it is. It's completely new, completely different. Surprise. Surprise. It's you just knowing for certain what was in that box on Christmas morning and you open it up and it's not at all. Poor analogy, but okay. It's, it's surprise. Not what you expect. That's what Jesus was saying. It's a surprise. All right. So if that's what the kingdom's not, then what is the kingdom? Let's go to the other side of the coin. What is Jesus saying? What is the kingdom then? Well, that part of the answer, after he says, nor will they say, look, here it is. You're not going to spot it that way, or there it is. He says instead, for behold, the kingdom of God is, it is in your midst. It is in your midst. All right. So we're talking about a kingdom. Let's just do this because I think it's, it's, an, easy, it's an easy thing to help just orient ourselves before we get specifically to Jesus' answer. When you think about kingdoms, God didn't use the word arbitrarily. It was deliberate. Um, when you think about kingdoms, there are certain things we know about kingdoms. So let's just, let's just acknowledge this as things we know about the kingdom of God. What is a kingdom? What are the characteristics of a kingdom that we can recognize? Well, there's probably more than the ones I'm going to give you, but just, let me just throw out a few. All kingdoms have a ruler. They have a ruler. By definition, a kingdom has a ruler, right? Jesus, in fact, was specific about it when he said that there's a kingdom of darkness and Satan's the head of it. Every kingdom has a ruler. And the kingdom of God has a ruler as well. The kingdom of God has a ruler. Interestingly, um, we who live in a, in a democratic republic, we, um, we forget what it's like to be under an absolute monarch. But kingdoms are, by definition, absolute monarchies. A kingdom is a monarchy, and the ruler is absolute. The ruler is the head. What he says goes. That's the way it is. Now, please hear this. You and I, being part of a kingdom, listen to this. You have a, a ruler, an absolute monarch over your life. See, we can, we can talk about, about the decline of culture and the fact that being not of this world means that Christians will, by definition, be countercultural. But listen to this. There are few things more countercultural to the American mind than to say, I have a ruler. Our default setting in the culture in which we're raised is to say that, that, that number one, no man is above any other man. We're all equal. No man can... can assert authority over another man. And in fact, I am the captain of my ship and the master of my own destiny. To say, 
I am under absolute rulership is a completely countercultural thing to say. No, I have a king. I have a king. We, start, we, we started as a nation in a fight against the tyranny of a king. <laughs> I'm not talking about good king, bad king, we'll leave all of that alone. But right now, let's just acknowledge that as the people of God, we live in a kingdom that has a king and he's absolute. It's an absolute monarchy. There's a, there's a ruler. Secondly, there are, every kingdom has borders, a certain geography that belongs to it. And the kingdom of God has borders also. There are boundaries to God's kingdom. In other words, there are people who are in it and there are people who are outside of it. It's just that the borders are not physical borders. Physically, all the people that live on this planet are mixed in together. But in the eyes of God, if we could see instead of an, a physical earthly kingdom and instead see a, a spiritual kingdom, we, what we would see from God's perspective is people that are spiritually in and people that are spiritually out of the borders of the kingdom. Very clear borders in the eyes of God. You're in or you're out. Now, this has some real, I, I need to move a little quickly here, but this has some real complexities to it. How many remember the old hymn, This is My Father's World? This is my father's world. Anybody, I mean, is that good theology? How many would agree that it's an, it's an expression of a truth that is a very complicated truth to talk about in actuality. Listen, I just read this the other day, and it, it, when I, it, again, it struck me, right? That the third temptation Jesus faced was this. Satan takes him up onto a high mountain. And it says that in a moment of time, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, if you will but bow and worship me, I will give to you all the nations. And it's fascinating that Jesus does not question Satan's authority to give him the nations. He does not say, that's not yours to give. What he says is, it's written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only. I can't worship you. No matter what you can give me, I can't worship you. Now listen, Handel's Messiah is, is based on, a, on, a, on Scripture. One of the places where the word kingdom does appear in Revelation is the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. But notice the language. The kingdoms of this world are become. They were not always. And so you have to ask yourself, what does it mean that this is my father's world? When the nations apparently don't belong to him right now. What does it mean when Jesus says of Satan, calls him the God of this world? Right? When, when, when Paul writes, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe. 
What does that mean? How do we understand this? My brothers and sisters, please listen. Right now there is a kingdom and it is spiritual and it has borders. That is, there are things and places and people over which God rules and there are others that he allows to be under other rule for now. It's a simplistic way to say it. But it's true. It's true. Every kingdom has borders, and not everything is inside the borders of the kingdom of God. Not everyone and not everything is inside of those borders. Every kingdom, thirdly, has laws that govern it. By law, I don't mean necessarily always this is something that you must obey precisely in this way. But here's a law of the kingdom, for example, that we've already identified this morning. That, that morning sacrifices. I'm sorry, I completely forgot about this thing. That's the first time that's happened. Um, uh, that, that it's a law of the kingdom that there's something life-giving about your first thought in the morning, turning to the Lord your God and offering him with a morning sacrifice. It's not like a rule that if you miss a day, you're just a bad, wicked person that God is displeased with. But there is a, there is a law that says, that says life comes this way. Listen, my brothers and sisters, there are certain means that God has chosen to minister life to us. Communion ministers life to us. The word ministers a word of grace to us. Prayer ministers life to us. And, and that, that first morning attention to God that turns there, there's a life that comes there that can sustain you through the rest of the day. The intention is not to be legalistic about it. I think it was Luther who said something like, I am so busy today that I can't afford not to take two hours to pray this morning. He was simply saying that I need all the strength from God I can get to face what I have to face today, right? So the, the idea is not necessarily hard and fast rules, but that we get to understand the economy of God. How do things work in this kingdom? How do things work? And it's good for us to know the laws of the kingdom, how things work, how things work. The last thing is that all kingdoms have enemies. All kingdoms have enemies. There's a kingdom that opposes each kingdom. We've done this before, but let me just say it very briefly. The Bible is actually pretty clear about specific opponents. God the Father is opposed by this world. God the Son is opposed by Satan. And God the Holy Spirit is opposed by your flesh. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other. And you and I live in a, in a kingdom that is in conflict. We live under a father who is being opposed by the world around us. And we live in a kingdom in which Satan is raging against the head of our kingdom. And then there's the enemy that lies within. There's a flesh that rebels against the will of the king present in our lives by the Holy Spirit. We have enemies to face. More could be said, but you get the idea. Every, every kingdom has these. So please forgive me. I, I just forgot to do this this morning, and uh, it's, 
the imperfections of a man. If you want a really simple definition for the kingdom, it's the rule of God. It's the rule of God. The rule of God. All kingdoms have rulers, borders, laws, and enemies. The simple definition is the kingdom is the rule of God. What God rules over is his kingdom. What he doesn't rule over is not his kingdom. All right. So we need to close. I actually caught up. So what does Jesus mean in verse 21 when he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst? What does he mean? There's two possibilities. And I think he meant both of them, not one or the other. Two things is what he means when he says, the kingdom is in your midst. The first is this. Clearly, he's talking to people who are not in the kingdom. He's talking to Pharisees. These were not his supporters. <laughs> they were not on his side. And so when he says to them, the kingdom of God is in your midst, what he means is this. He means there's the physical world with its geography. And then there's the spiritual value that everything has. And in this geography, all mixed together on this geography, there are different spiritual values. And those spiritual values mean that some people are on the inside of the kingdom and some people are on the outside of the kingdom. But here's the beauty of it. Those people that make up my kingdom are sprinkled all over this planet. So what you have to know is that the kingdom is among you. If you're on the outside of it, what you know is this. Somewhere on, the, on your block, there's someone that is inside of the kingdom. The kingdom is in your midst. It's on your block. It's on your block. You're living on a geography that has ins and outs. Now, here's what I want to say to you. You are the ins that mean your neighbors are in the midst of the kingdom. You're the ins. You're the ins. The kingdom is in the midst of the people of this world because you're in the midst of the people of this world. Because you've been sprinkled out because God has collected people in this fellowship from, where are you from? Give me the towns. Carlisle. Dillsburg. Mechanicsburg. Where else do you live? There's got to be somewhere else, right? What's that? Whatever. You get the idea. All of these places, the kingdom is in their midst. You're there. You're there. You are the bearer of the kingdom's presence. That's you. You're the representative of the kingdom. And you're where you are to be a representative of Christ's kingdom. Now, you can look at that in one of two ways. You can look at those people that are on the outside and say, you poor people, you poor Pharisees, it's all your fault. The kingdom was in your midst and you rejected. But the flip side of that is the kingdom is in their midst and is there for a reason. And it will be a crying shame if those who were the carriers of the kingdom into that area don't carry the kingdom into the area. If they just hunker down 
and set up a little bastion of a kingdom somewhere that no one knows about. That's sad, right? The kingdom is in your midst. Wherever believers are, people are in the midst of the kingdom, and that's why God has spread us around. It's why God has sprinkled us around, because we carry the kingdom. We carry the kingdom. The second thing he meant is that some kingdom, some people have the kingdom within them. In fact, that's the way it reads in the King James. The kingdom is not in your midst. The King James says, the kingdom is within you. It's within you. And that's the second possibility. Some people have the kingdom within them. So this is what I need to close with. because it, it's, it, And this is the, the, the really, really simple, basic message that all of us already know, but that we all battle every day. Don't answer out loud. I'm sorry, I gotta stay put. Don't answer out loud. When's the last time you had an argument with someone? An argument that you knew wasn't righteous. An argument that you knew was a, hey, it was a fight, come on, okay? It was a fight, you had a fight. When's the last time? Now ask yourself, did that happen because Jesus was ruling on the throne of your heart? Or is that because you kicked him off the throne in that moment and said, I, I'll take this one? Where do wars and fightings come from among you? James says. Do they not come from your own lusts that war within your members? You see, all of us know like, like Christianity 101, like kindergarten Christianity, that Jesus is supposed to be on the throne of my heart. But when I look at my spouse, the test of Jesus on the throne of my heart gets real in a hurry. Well, it doesn't for me because I have my wife. But for her, it becomes a test really fast because she has to look at me. Right? And then we have to look at each other. And the test becomes, am I on the throne of my heart or is Jesus on the throne of my heart? See, every sin temptation you face is the base, the fundamental question is, will you have it your way or is he the king of your heart? Everyone, everyone, every decision you make, it's all, it all come boils down to this. It's the presence of King Jesus. Let me say it in a couple of ways. It's the rule of God in your heart. It's the lordship of Christ in your life. It's the presence of King Jesus on the throne of your will. Do I surrender and obey? Or do I resist and kick and scream and have it my way? Because you can debate, but you can't change the decree of the, of the ruler. He doesn't negotiate with us. He works in us. He's patient with us. But he doesn't change his will. His, his moral rights and wrongs don't change. Right? And he just says to us, obey me. Obey me for your good. For your good. We're living in a day when the world is demanding that we change the definitions that the ruler has given to us. And we're gonna be called 
to stand on the definitions that God has given to us, to be obedient to the king, the ruler over us. We used to sing an old song. It's not a very, for me anyways, for you it might be, it's fine. It's just not a very attractive song to me. But the message, I remember singing, Jesus be the Lord of all. Jesus be the Lord of all. Jesus be the Lord of all the kingdoms of my heart. You know what I like about that song? Is it describes my heart not as a kingdom, but as so huge that it has a lot of kingdoms. And that all of them, on some level, are asked to bow to the rule of the king. And there are some kingdoms that I've done a pretty good job with. And then there are some kingdoms that I really struggle with. My brothers and sisters, it's such a simple thing to say. But when we say in 2021 we're calling God's people to Jesus first, one of the things we mean is he has a kingdom and you're in it. And he's your ruler. So let him be your king. Let him be your king. What would it really mean for him to be my king this week, today, in my relationships? What would it mean for him to be my king? Listen, the kingdom is within you. If you're a believer, the kingdom is within you. So the next thing I'm going to say, the last thing I'm going to say is inescapable. Since the kingdom is within you, when you yield yourself and obey, you will enjoy blessing because there will be peace in your heart. But when you resist and refuse and disobey, you cannot help but experience guilt and shame. Because when the kingdom is within you, that's how it reacts to rebellion. So let Jesus be your king and enjoy the blessedness and the peace of his rule over your life. Is that about as basic and simple of a message as you could throw out there to end with? But how many would agree it's rubber meets the road stuff for us as believers, right? Jesus be the Lord of all the kingdoms of my heart. All right, let's close.